This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. The Coin World Marketplace is the safest way to buy and sell your coins and bullion. Order from the dealer of your choice and pay safely and securely using our escrow checkout. Visit coinworld.market to browse our inventory today. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I am Jeff Stark. We have a wonderful show for you today. We were lucky enough to talk to David W. Lang, an expert on coin boards, folders, and albums. And we interviewed him about his new book about Whitman coin folders. On top of all that, we're going to be discussing our own experience with coin boards and folders, reviewing an issue of Coin World from 1978. And I'm going to be talking about a book about 1933 gold double eagles. Speaking of board, we hope that our discussions every week have been entertaining you. And if they have, we hope that you will subscribe on whatever platform you are getting the podcast and spread the love for us. Leave us a positive review. We would really appreciate it. That way we can stand here and do this as we do every week. I'd also add that if you all have any questions, we are trying to put together a segment where we just, in lieu of an interview, we answer uh, listener questions. So if you all have anything burning that you want to know about Jeff or I, about the show, about coins in general, we've received a few really great questions and we would love to receive some more. So I'm, I'm, I'm single. I'm a Leo. I like long walks on the beach. Oh, you, <laughs> you, you, you said questions about Jeff or I, and I'm like, what are they, you know, they're going to, we're going to plumb the depths of our soul here. Or? Yeah. I mean, we, we, we could coins. just, we, we could put Jeff's eHarmony profile into the show notes, but e, I think, no, um, eHarmony, no, it's, it's match. I'm not on eHarmony. <laughs> Well, in any case, um, in any case, you know, we appreciate hearing from all of you. And but no, this week, though, Jeff, you know, I loved our conversation with David Lang because I know that objects that were important to my early hobby journey definitely include coin books and coin albums, coin folders, I should say, and coin albums. You know, I know that when I was a little kid in the, the very early aughts, my dad came home with two green uh, Littleton coin folders for the original state quarter program back in, in 2000 or 2001, I think. I know the date on my, my Littleton board says copyright 2000, so it was probably sometime after that. And so filling those boards with quarters plucked from circulation, that was sort of a seminal moment in my collecting journey. And I know that a lot of other people probably remember you know, filling coin folders back in the 50s or the 60s or, you know, a number of decades ago or more recently. So so I appreciated that conversation. It not only resonated with my early collecting experience, but I think it gestures to a way of getting people more interested in the hobby by presenting them with something to fill, you know, creating a little mini collecting journey. Those Blue Whitman folders are the most, I would say, most iconic hobby item from the 20th century. And because David's book explores them, we we wanted to talk about that with him. I have at arm's length from the microphone here, my Blue Whitman folders for Lincoln Sense, the three different ones from my collecting youth, uh, number one, 1909 to 1940, number two, 1941 to 74 and then a Lincoln Memorial set uh, starting at 1959. In one of the things early on during this weird year and things being, the world being turned upside down is I pulled out my, the collection from my youth and, and younger days 
uh, I would say, before Sydney, before I moved to Ohio to work for CoinWorld in 2004. And I looked through everything and I, I thought about the very basics of the hobby that got me involved. And it's a hobby now that has taken me around the world, not this year, basically, <laughs> not, not since February anyway. But, you know, it all started the same way that it started for so many collectors. And let's face it, many folks who used to collect and are no longer collectors or, you know, accumulators, if you will, folks that just, it was something, it's, it's a fun family thing to do. That is especially in in times of um, when people are looking for something to do, what a great thing to, you know, order, order 5,000 wheat cents if you have kids and, and the albums uh, or the folders rather, and, and spend some evenings looking through there and, and putting together, putting the coins in the folder and talk about, well, I need, I need a, you know, 1945 or this or that or whatever, you know, Oh, look at these steel cents, that kind of thing. Collecting often, you know, certainly at coin world, we do give a lot of headlines to big dollar items. But one of the things that I do in, in covering world numismatics is understanding and recognizing that there are approaches that have to fit every pocketbook. And I'm not going to obtain or own, an Ides of March um, silver denarius from, from ancient Rome, but I can write about, uh, here recently I wrote about Byzantine gold coins. It was a fun story to put together, very challenging, but I looked at, okay, if I had enough money to buy one gold American eagle, what would that be? And I looked at a, a auction results and figured out that, okay, I could have gotten these five Byzantine coins, gold coins, and they had half the gold of the American Eagle for the same price. So, you know, if, if you're wanting to own gold as a store of wealth and a, a hedge uh, against inflation and an investment type thing, well, here's something that offered history with the gold. Now it's not as fungible. It's not, you can't just walk into a, a local coin shop and, and they'll buy it at 95 to 97% of, of spot, but it offered uh, so much, I thought, more fun to be able to look at it that way than precious metal values. So, you know, the collecting has to be approachable for all budgets. And certainly the Whitman folders help people do that, starting out, even getting kids or grandkids involved. It's just, um, it, I, I don't know, it, it, it reminded me of my start and my dad taking me to various banks and, and buying up half dollars by the roll and box to look for silver halves and, and so on. And, and it's just a reminder that the hobby is what you make it and where you meet it, not necessarily something that requires a big bourse and a big budget. That's absolutely true. And there's just something really satisfying about picking coins out of circulation and, and placing and filling holes in an album, even just of state quarters. I mean, obviously a lot of older dealers or a lot of dealers, at least who can remember being able to pull silver out of circulation pretty regularly, often lament the sort of the, the departure of that mode of collecting and think that that's part of the reason for the hobby's demographic challenges is that, you know, well, you can't pick rarities out of circulation or you can't pick silver out of circulation. And I think that the Mint's efforts through the, the state quarter program and the different uh, dollar coin programs and different programs like that, I think, can stimulate some amount of interest. And but the, w, the W Mint mark here last yes. year and this year. Yes, that's another good one. 
And it's interesting how this sort of piggybacks on a, a recent interview we had with Chuck Daughtry about the, the scent project, because one thing that one of the goals of that project, listen, it's a couple episodes ago, is to really find out what is out in circulation and what is available. There's wide AM coins. There might be some rare doubling. There might be, there's thousands of common error coins or varieties that aren't worth a whole lot, but they're illustrative of the minting process and what sort of can slip out into circulation. There are many ways to approach it and many joy to be had without, again, being so focused on the the bottom line. No, I agree. And also, this conversation reminded me of another interview that we had with uh, Michael O'Malley, where he describes money in his book as something unthought, that people just kind of, if people use cash at all, they use it kind of mindlessly. They don't think about the, the symbolism on the notes and coins. They don't think about how the notes and coins have evolved, how paper money evolved from basically government trying to finance the Civil War. They don't think about the symbolism on coins. and But I think that's starting to change too. I mean, the, the 2020 American Samoa, America the Beautiful Quarter, with the bats on it, a lot of people made the connection between the bats that appeared on the quarter and, and the origins of the COVID crisis. So when people are combing through their change and when people are engaging with the objects that they use in everyday transactions, coins and, and paper money, I think that, that that makes money something thought again. And it might just be looking for a date and a mint mark, but that's that's a significantly more complex relationship than most people have with cash. So to the extent that, that coin folders and coin boards and this, this sort of style of collecting that we're talking about, to the extent that all of those things encourage people to think about their pocket change, I think that that could potentially be really valuable for the hobby. So I definitely appreciated uh, Lang's perspective and the excellent research that he's done on the development of these products. Yeah, it really reflects a lifetime of work and interest in the subject. So uh, hopefully uh, you'll hang on for that interview toward the end and learn something as we did from it. That's our mission to, to help you learn as we learn as we walk on this journey together. Absolutely. So in that spirit, though, Jeff, what was happening this week in numismatic history? I didn't plan it this way, but if you go to September 6th and you look at what happened that day in history, there's an event that was important to my collecting interest in the 80s, but the event happened in 1622. Well, what am I talking about? So September 6th, 1622, was when the treasure ship Nuestra Señora de Atocha hit the reef and sunk near the Florida Keys. And this was a, an enormous news story in the 1980s as treasure salver, salver Mel Fisher and uh, his son Kip. And uh, there was a whole band of, of guys and women involved in locating the treasure, uh, hauling it up later then as it came to market. And that was sort of underway in the mid to late 1980s. And I, I remember reading Boy's Life magazine and maybe like a um, National Geographic for kids or something similar to that, but definitely Boy's Life. And maybe that's where it was. But the story of this treasure was one of those things, the catalyzing things that, you know, it, it's 
as a six to eight to 10 year old, the eyes get big, you know, you, oh my gosh, there's $10 million or whatever it was of treasure under the ocean and it's there waiting to be discovered. And, and I went down that path into being interested in the Bedford, Virginia treasure. There was a book that I read in, um, I think fourth grade or third grade, something like that, that, that talks about that and you know the lost dutchman's treasure out in arizona and so interestingly when the ana show was in phoenix the spring ana show i went to the cemetery where the guy who is purported to be the lost dutchman jacob walls i think is his name where he is buried but anyway that journey again that journey my journey all started started with this atocha wreck in 1622. And then in the 1980s, as it was being discovered and rescued and brought up from the ocean floor and eventually entered the market. So that one really speaks to me because of its importance in sort of my formative years in the hobby. Oh, that's awesome. That's a really interesting story. I've actually, I have seen and, and handled an Atocha, a, a silver bar from the wreck of the, of the Atocha. So that's- yes. That's really interesting. Yes. And in fact, I think, I don't know if it was this year in at the New York International, but there's an auction firm in Florida, Daniel Frank Sedgwick, and they have uh, treasure auctions twice a year, although they have expanded into general auction stuff. It's not just treasure related, but they always have a major component of treasure material. And they had highlights available for view at the show in New York this year. And if it wasn't the Atocha, it was another shipwreck. But Dan was like, here, Dan and Augie were here. You want to hold a, a, a silver bar that was, or maybe it was a gold bar. I don't remember. I think it was a gold bar actually. Here, you want to hold a gold bar that was in such and such a wreck. I don't know if it was El Cazador or the Atocha or one of the others, but it's like, oh my gosh, you know, here's a a $30,000 object or more, and it has this romance and history to it, and I'm touching it, (laughs) you know, so that's, that's the allure. That's the, the fun of the hobby, um, if you, even if you can't afford to buy the thing, you maybe, you know, if you have a good relationship with the dealer, you know, here, let me pick that up. Let me feel the weight of that, both its physical weight and the narrative weight that the piece carries. So yes, once coin shows come back, that's something that everybody should do is, is go look for treasure stuff and, and see if, let that romance course through your veins, if you will. You know, speaking of romance, you're going to jump ahead here for a second. We're looking at an issue of Coin World from 1978 because Lang's most recent book, the one that we were discussing in our interview with him, he analyzes Whitman coin folders uh, produced between 1940 and 1978. So we decided to pick the latter year of that period, 1970, the last year, I should say, yes. of that and, period. Well, there was no there was no coin world in 1940. So we had to go. Yeah, with- <laughs> we, yeah we, we couldn't do the first year of that period. So we decided to do the, the last one. So this is a September 6th, 1978, and a letter that appears on, on the pages is entitled The Romance is Gone. And it's a fairly – both the letters that I'm analyzing this week are fairly long, so I necessarily have to abbreviate them a little bit. But uh, this, this letter is titled The Romance is Gone, and it reads – A 20-year romance with coin collecting is over for me. When the junk metal was substituted for silver, that didn't. Occasionally, one might get a silver coin in change, but not in the last eight or ten years. I compare the use of cupronickel metal in coinage to a dinner table set with crystal, fine china, and linens. Then the hostess finishes off the table with stainless steel service. What a letdown. 
There is no luster to this bullet metal in spite of the fact that many dealers advertise BU coins dated after 1964. During the last two decades, the dyed-in-the-wool collector has been witness to the degradation of numismatics in general. For a while, silver plates were in thing. The thing, I guess, is what he was trying to say. Where are they now? The pages of Coin World are, were saturated with ads promoting plates like the silver dollar ads scattered over the landscape now. Now everyone is jumping on the silver dollar bandwagon, pumping and pressuring the investor to climb aboard and participate in the ripoff of all times. The ANA's grading system is desperately trying to keep a lid on the boiling pot, but the multitude are trying their darndest to establish a grade in excess of MS-70 in order to huckster their wares. I am also completely fed up with the high-sounding labels of grading, i.e., Choice, brilliant, gem, jewel, magnificent, effulgent, and any other superlatives that the human mind can dredge up from the English language. The simple MS rating should suffice. No need to gild the lily. The, quote, coins of investment thing is also elevated to ethereal proportions, as the auctioneers gleefully point out how much coins have appreciated over decades of time. What they don't point out is that the original bona fide collector, whose collection is being auctioned off, is no longer on this earth to participate in this windfall. I will put my collecting money into certificates of deposit and take my chances with inflation along with some 2,200 million other Americans. After delivering this diatribe, I'll dive into my bomb shelter. From Riley M. Diener of Mishawaka, Indiana. So, Cornworld gets a lot of letters railing against different practices and patterns in the hobby, and this one touched on quite a few of those. Yeah, it's um interesting that there's always going to be something with which people will take issue in the hobby. And the news headline from that issue sort of offers a nice juxtaposition with today's marketplace, because the thing that jumped out at me on the front page was a small story, but you know, it's Mint opens orders for 1978 uncirculated sets, which, so here we are, this issue comes out at the beginning of September of 1978, and the uncirculated sets are finally available for sale. That would never happen today, right? You wouldn't have to wait nine months into a year to have the set become available. And oh gosh, um, that uncirculated set is about the only new thing you can buy from the Mint, whereas today there's new things to buy from the Mint all the time. As recently, CoinWorld reported about the colorful basketball Hall of Fame coins. There are the regular basketball Hall of Fame coins. You know, there were no commemorative coins in 1978. There was no bullion. There were no special collector versions of these. It was just, it was a very barren landscape numismatically for the hobby in the sense of if you're a collector in the U.S. wanting to buy U.S material, you didn't have many options. You, In fact, you had the proof or the unk set. And uh, that's why some of the mintages were so high in the 60s and 70s, because there wasn't anything else to buy. So if you're going to participate in the hobby, you have to do this. So the U.S. Mint began accepting orders on September 1. Mint director Stella Hackle announced, how much do you think one of those 1978 uncirculated sets sold for from the Mint, Chris? That's oh, not the trivia question, by the way. <laughs> Putting me on the spot. Um, I, I, I really couldn't say it, Jeff. So, so they had a face value of $3.82, and they were mounted in the soft plastic holder. Purchase price included postage and registration. And as in the past, so the price uh, that year was the same as it was in 1977, the year before, and sales were restricted to five per customer. Those on the mint's 
mailing list would begin receiving forms soon. Those not on the mailing list could order direct without needing an order form. So do you have, you want to guess now that you've heard a little bit more about the scenario? Oh gosh. Let's say, um, I'm going to guess $7.50. Oh, if you had just said the first numeral, you would have hit it. Ah, $7. It was $7. You could buy five sets. I think $7 would probably buy a 1978 Unk set today. The only problem is $7 now is worth like what a dollar was back then or $2 was back then. So if you bought five sets for $35 in 1978, you would have done better to uh, throw that money at uh, something in silver or uh, maybe even the stock market. But, you know, not everything has to be uh, a balance sheet thing. You enjoy the hobby for what it is. That was kind of fun. That's what jumped out to me anyway, uh, because collectors nowadays certainly have so many more, so many more options. Oh, absolutely. And also in 1978, there's one other letter that caught my eye. It, it's quite a lengthy letter, but it deals with something, a really interesting event of the late 70s and early 80s. And it kind of, it, it caught my eye as an interesting kind of sign of the times. It's entitled Reader Reports Soviet Coin Boycott. And the letter reads in part, a boycott of the Soviet 1980 Olympic coins is rapidly gaining momentum in Canada and threatens to put an embarrassing crimp in the plans of the Russian government to finance the games. In a full-page advertisement in the latest issue of Canadian Coin News, Empire Industries, Inc., a large Montreal coin dealership, shows two photographs of the Russian coins partially obscured by a banner reading, In protest to Soviet injustices, we will no longer carry Russian Olympic coins, and we urge others to boycott all Russian goods. According to the letter, a couple of other major Canadian coin dealers encouraged uh, similar boycotts, and and apparently this boycott even had support from clergy. The letter cites a Reverend Gordon C. Simons of Eaton Valley United Church in Sawyersville, Quebec, who was suggesting that collectors go so far as to boycott dealers who handle the Olympic coins in general. So not only boycotting sales of the coins from Russia, but from dealers reselling them. Arguing that objects, and I'm I'm quoting the letter here again, objects to the Soviet government using the profits from the sale of its Olympic coins to maintain communist prisons and psychiatric institutions for political prisoners. The letter concludes... This is not the first time a boycott has hit the numismatic scene on this continent. Last fall, in response to pressure from blacks, liberals, and church groups, three New York City television stations, the flagships of the major U.S. networks, banned all advertising of the South African Kruger and gold piece. Demonstrators in Cleveland forced a major coin dealer, as well as giant May Company department store, to stop selling the same coins. And a sit-in was was staged at a Chicago radio station, which was giving away Kruger Rands in a contest. Some observers in Canada feel that the Olympic coin boycott is just beginning and will soon spread across Canada into the United States. It's from a man named Robert Aaron from Toronto, Ontario. So this caught my my eye for two reasons. One, as I mentioned at the top, is it's kind of a sign of the times. It's interesting that the Soviet Union hosting the Olympic Games in 1980, those games quickly became a kind of an international cause, especially after the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in late 1979, the United States ultimately boycotted the games. And so it's interesting to see a numismatic dimension of that boycott, that that boycott wasn't just something related to the Olympics or related to international affairs. It shows how those issues impacted coin collecting here. And then I also found the parallel case that was cited of um, boycotting Krugerrands to protest uh, injustice in South Africa 
uh, around the same time. I found that a really interesting parallel as well. So it was really quite a fascinating letter that sort of shows, you know, this issue as a, as a product of the Cold War and, you know, and a product of the late 1970s. So I found it really interesting. Well, that big, smart Harvard brain of yours is really in overdrive. Um, thinking about all these things, what have you been thinking about based on what you're reading this week? Ah, gotcha. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, I'm going to be talking about a book that covers the infamous 1933 double eagle, specifically David Tripp's Illegal Tender. So Tripp takes readers through a really detailed world from the early 20th century, essentially to 2002, when the only double eagle that can be legally owned crossed the auction block for a record-breaking $7,590,020. Tripp begins by discussing the coin's origins in the closing months of Augusta St. Gauden's life in 1907, as the beautiful coins kind of came into being part of uh, Theodore Roosevelt's Renaissance of American Coinage. There's a book on that that we've talked about on the show. Tripp covers the economic crises posed by the Great Depression and how FDR's executive orders and eventually the Gold Reserve Act uh, the concern private gold ownership evolved, and how the 1933 Double Eagle's fate was seemingly sealed as they were sent to be melted and placed in, turned into bars and then placed in Fort Knox. Tripp then takes us through a maze of mint documents detailing how what happened to many of these Double Eagles, how they were melted, and introducing us to a cast of characters from FDR to jewelers in Philadelphia and Secret Service agents who all played a role in the theft and subsequent investigation of the coins and how they reappeared eventually. So he describes the Secret Service investigation in 1944 and 45 as the Mint and other government officials became aware that a number of 1933 Eagles not only had evaded melting, um, though two were sent to the Smithsonian, but the rest were supposed to have been melted, but a number had managed to get out and were on the market selling for pretty significant sums of money. And so one of the coins had been given an export license and sent to King Farouk of Egypt, who put it into his personal collection. But then, after the monarch was deposed in 1954, the coin essentially disappeared, and no one really knew where it was. So, throughout the book, Tripp paints lush scenes in virtually every chapter, from well-dressed dealers in luxurious offices to convicted criminals. And, you know, there are bold-faced names, really famous, you know, hobbyists and coin dealers from, as, you know, as far back as the early 20th century. And I learned a great deal about some of those bold-faced names by reading the book. And it really filled in a lot of gaps in my knowledge about the history of the 1933 Double Eagle, which was for a long time the most valuable coin in the world. So really, it's if anyone wants to learn more about the history of the 1933 Double Eagles, why they're illegal to own... And really just be walked through a fascinating chapter of relatively recent numismatic history. Illegal Tender is, it's definitely, it's definitely worth a read. So, you know, definitely go and check that out. Awesome. So now that you've explored your bookshelf foray a little bit, it's time for me to ask you the trivia question I asked a week ago, last episode. And this time you don't get to sit by idly and just listen. You have to answer it. So last show, we had David Vaggy on, and we discussed ancient coins. So I wanted to come up with an ancient coin question or a question related to ancient coins. And so this is, you know, it's very basic level, but I think it's one, it's an answer that everybody should know. It's a question every collector should be able to answer. And that is, and I think it's a two-parter, right? The first coins were struck in Lydia. What metal was used to strike them and what components were part of this alloy? 
So what is the name for the metal used and what metals make up that alloy? The alloy is electrum. Correct. And it is composed of silver and gold. Correct. So the first coins were from Lydia and they were as... Chris has just stated, Electrum, and uh, so they have a sort of a whitish-goldish look. Later techniques would, would be developed to refine, and you would uh, start seeing coins of silver and coins of gold. But at that time, they could just form the metal, lumps of metal, so they just kept them together, and that's how they used them. So very good. Now, the question this week actually comes from David Lang's new book. It's a two-parter. And one part is answered in the interview. One part is not, I don't think. Uh, It may be. So you're going to have to listen very closely to the interview. So we know the company today as Whitman, but it had a name before that. And I want to know what name Whitman was known by. What corporate name did it go by before adopting the Whitman name? And also, where was this company located? Because the modern Whitman is based out of Atlanta, and they have another office in Pelham, Alabama, near Birmingham. But that is not where they were based out of at the time in the 40s, 50s, and so on. Many longtime hobbyists will no doubt remember seeing the name, the town name on items. Somebody who's not been in the hobby for 70 years, 50 years, may not. So that is the question, or those are the questions that we'll provide an answer next time. As listeners are looking forward to that, they can enjoy our interview with David W. Lang about his newest book on Whitman coin folders produced between 1940 and 1978. Please enjoy. Chris and I are delighted today to be joined by David W. Lang, who is Research Director at Numismatic Guarantee Corp. But we're going to talk about his foray into the history of the hobby, and that is the items that are used to build collections themselves. David has just published his third volume in an ongoing series about coin collecting albums and boards. So that is why he is joining the show today. Thank you so much for being here. Nice to be there, gentlemen. The complete title of this newest work is Coin Collecting Albums, A Complete History and Catalog, Volume 3. The subtitle, I guess, is Whitman Publishing Company, Folders and Albums, 1940 to 1978. Now, the reason it's really exciting to talk to you today about this is Whitman has been so instrumental in the expansion of the hobby from the you know post-war era to really even to today. Can you talk about how Whitman filled that role and and how important they were in reaching the masses? Well, Whitman was an established company before it got into the coin supplies business. It was a huge producer of children's books, the famous Big Little Books, uh, also picture puzzles, games of all sorts. And so it had this tremendous established uh, retail outlet and also a, a very large mailing list, a very large distribution list. Whereas Pretty much everybody else who went into the coin album and coin folder business was doing it from scratch and doing it from purely the numismatic hobby. For those who aren't familiar, can you explain what a board is, what an album is, what a folder is, how they're different? Because the boards, I think, were the precursor to the the folders and all that. For somebody who's new to this topic, how should they think about these things? Well, yes, you're correct that the uh, coin board was the uh, origin of our popular coin collecting today. The 
process of pushing coins into a hole and filling the piece uh, to completion. The coin board was actually invented by a fellow named Joseph K. Post in Nina, Wisconsin, but he went to nearby Racine and contracted with Whitman to print these boards. And as originally produced, they were measured 11 inches wide by 14 inches tall, and it was just a single panel. The notion of pushing them into the hole, filling the slots, is the same as it is almost 90 years later today, but it was just a one-piece board rather than the folding concept that came a few years later. You've explained in your writing that coin boards and folders are sort of part of a longer tradition in numismatics of displaying coins in different ways. You've made reference to coin cabinets, which are familiar to collectors of ancient coins especially. What point in the evolution of coin presentation do coin boards and folders occupy? How did they evolve out of previous styles of presenting coins? Well, if you go back to the 1920s and earlier, there were really only two ways to display coins. If you had the means and the space to do so, you had a fine wooden cabinet with velvet lined drawers, and uh, it was a splendid piece of furniture that occupied uh, quite a few square feet. But this was beyond the budget of the casual collector. And for That individual, he or she had only one option, which was to put the coins in little tin square paper envelopes, which were not good for long-term preservation, but they were certainly cheap and you could write information on them. The very notion of a coin album didn't exist until the late 1920s, and it began with a fellow named Martin Luther Beisel, who was a collector of early half dollars by varieties. And he created for himself a large panel that had openings in it with clear slides so that he could hold numerous half dollars side by side and compare them in order to make his variety study. And he fortunately owned a paper manufacturing company or paper products company that made novelties such as holiday decorations, calendars, that sort of thing. So he had at his disposal the means and the tooling to produce this item. But when he finally created it, he realized that there were commercial possibilities here. And uh, a fellow named Wade Raymond, who was the most prominent coin dealer in the 1920s and 30s, realized as well as Beisel that this product could actually be developed into something very commercial. And in fact, Raymond ended up buying the rights from Beisel to the product in 1930 and made it into what is known today as the National Coin Album. That was a fairly expensive product that was made from the 30s right into the early 60s. But it, again, was geared toward the collector of some means. A national coin album cost 3 or $4 back in 1930, which was quite a bit of money and precluded the very casual collectors. So it was J.K. Post who realized that something cheaper was needed for the everyman collector. And his coin board sold for just 25 cents each when they went on sale in 1935. And that's really the beginnings of coin collecting as a popular mass hobby that we still know it as today. Could you elaborate a little bit more on the role of these commercial firms in attracting new collectors? Because coin folders, and I think to a lesser extent boards, are familiar to virtually everyone in the numismatic industry or hobby, but they're also fairly familiar to sort of the uninitiated. So were the commercial capacities and the sort of more beginner-friendly nature of these things, did that help to expand the hobby? And could you elaborate a little bit on that? Uh, Certainly. Uh, That is really what made the hobby a mass appeal activity. Coin collecting was pretty much under the radar of the entire public up until the 1930s. It was a hobby usually for middle class or wealthy gentlemen. There were very few women in numismatics, all, you know, a situation which we're still dealing with today. 
But back then, it was particularly true. It was both an economic and uh, gender barrier. When the coin boards first came out, they were directed not toward established collectors. They were directed toward newbies, people who would discover this activity. And, and particularly what made them important is they were not sold exclusively through coin dealers and coin shops. These items were marketed through the five and dime stores like Woolworths, Kresge, uh, W.T. Grant. They were in newsstands where people would see them. They were in tobacco shops. They were in stationery stores. You could not possibly avoid contact with these things. And they were very intriguing to people because it cost absolutely nothing beyond the initial price of 25 cents. You simply took your pocket change, filled as many holes as you could. And if the need arose to spend the money, you could just pop them right back out. Uh, So there was really very little overhead in this. And of course, the thing that made it so compelling was the need in the human mind for completeness. People discovered early on that the 1909 SVDB cent or the 1914 D cent or the 1916 dime were the ones they simply could not find. And that was only then that they went and sought out coin dealers and progressed beyond this mere casual collecting of the beginner. Has that popularity and accessibility been maintained since the early mid 20th century? Do coin boards and folders still serve that same purpose of enticing less experienced people into the hobby? They do still serve a purpose there. We got something of a boost with the state quarter program 20 years ago that introduced a whole new generation into the notion of filling the folder and completing all of the openings. In terms of the sheer numbers or even as a percentage of the population, I'd say there are probably fewer people collecting coins now than there were at its height from the mid-1930s through the 1960s. Those were really the golden era of the mass hobby, where almost everybody seemed to be looking to fill those holes. And Whitman folders and Dansko folders were everywhere you went. I was a child in the 1960s, and I can remember pretty much any store I went to, as long as they sold retail goods of a general nature, they would always have a few coin folders on display. Even places like gas stations would have them for sale. or, uh, Like I say, newsstands. They were pretty much everywhere at that time. And we don't see that quite as much today. There aren't that even that many retail bookstores anymore, but those that do exist might have a small display of one brand. But the mass presence is not as great as it was 50 years ago. You mentioned Post out of Nina, Wisconsin, as being sort of instrumental in, you know, he was close to Racine where Whitman was. Talk about the evolution from those boards to the folders, because Whitman, was it Whitman who really developed the folder concept that we all, you know, is, is in use now, eighty still 80 years later? Well, it didn't begin with Whitman. The first manufacturer of folders was Dansko which uh, Dansko stands for Daniel Stamp Company, and it was formed in 1937 as its stamp dealership. Two years later, they branched out into the coin supply business by creating the very first coin folders. These appeared late in 1939. And then another coin board manufacturer, Whitman's biggest rival, a fellow named Joseph Oberweis in Los Angeles, he caught on to the Dansko product, which was made at that time in Venice, California, not too far away from him. And he produced his own line of coin folders starting about the summer of 1940. And finally, Whitman joined the fray late in 1940. The very earliest ad I've ever seen for a Whitman folder was from the December 1940 issue of Popular Mechanics, of all things. And that debuted at that time. Whitman didn't advertise it much in numismatic publications. It was not thought of as a thing for established collectors. 
but they did advertise in uh, things like Hobbies Magazine, Popular Mechanics, uh, any sort of general publication that would appeal, appeal to people not already familiar with the hobby. And because Whitman could both produce and distribute such a tremendous number of products, they very quickly became the dominant brand, even though they certainly weren't the first. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense because we know that they were everywhere with that distribution network. So that really gave them the leg up. And that's why they're sort of, you grew up in the, I think the 60s uh, filling them. I grew up in the 80s and 90s filling them. Chris was 10, 20 years later and did the same. (laughs) Yeah, it's just a little harder with each passing generation to get that introduction. Unless you have somebody in your family or a neighbor who's already involved in the activity. As a kid in the 60s, particularly the early part of the 60s, coin folders and the coin hobby in general as a cultural phenomenon was so pronounced. It was in TV shows, it was written into the scripts of a lot of sitcoms at that time. And very often the message was get rich quick, you know, which it remains today for a lot of beginners too. But it was much more prominent back then and it was very easy to find it. Today you have to usually work your way into the coin hobby through a backdoor. A lot of people get into it through bullion coins. But there's the TV networks that sell coins and whatever. But you don't see as many stores selling coin folders and other coin supply products, uh, stores of a general nature. But then again, you don't see as many stores. Where's Woolworths anymore? Where's Kresge? You know, they've all gone kaput. Unless something like Kresge was Kmart, right? I was so. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's, there's no uh, I don't know where it's, where it's like where you live, but I don't even see Kmart's around here anymore. But I don't. Yeah, say, I haven't. <laughs> if you look at something like Target and Walmart, if a retailer like that started pushing coin folders really hard, I think the hobby would get a great deal more exposure than it has right now. So, how did you fall into this area of you know? I, you're kind of the you know the unofficial historian of the hobby, as you know in in the latter half of the 20th century because of how important the boards and and the folders were in spreading the message. When did you first start to take a a look at these objects as something more than just a utility item? Well, I remember as a child, when we got into the late 60s, the coin hobby kind of hit a bump around 1965, 66. And even then, these products started to disappear from the stores. And I found as a child that certain titles for a less popular series, say bus dimes or uh, silver dollars, uh, two cent pieces, these were hard folders to find at that time. And so I, being a kid, I might have one worn out two cent piece and, and I'd want to put it in a folder, even though it looks silly by itself. And you couldn't find them anymore. So that kind of planted a seed in my mind even 50 plus years ago. But what really got me into this notion of these becoming collectible and being worth documenting uh, was in the ni- early 1980s. Uh, I belonged to several coin clubs in California at that time. And one of them had an annual book sale where they would sell books and, and ephemera and whatever to raise money. And one of the items was a Whitman coin board, 11 by 14 board from about 1941 for Lincoln cents, probably the single most popular title or most common title even today. But I just found that fascinating. I, I think I had seen one or two before Dealers would have them, you know, behind the counter just as a decoration. But I just thought that was the coolest thing. And I bought it for about three bucks. And as we know, as collectors, one thing leads to another. (laughs) Within a couple of years, this is this is early 1980s. So within a couple of years, I had to have 
one of every title of Coinboard by Whitman, then I discovered that there were multiple editions. They came in various color schemes, uh, all sorts of different catalog numbers. Well, one thing leads to another, and I gradually pieced together the entire history of all of these coin boards and made connections with other people who were collecting them. And coin boards led to folders, which led to albums. And and now I pretty much collect everything, even the little ephemera, uh, such as advertising items and things that date particularly from the 1950s, 60s, which to me still embodies the golden era of popular coin collecting. Yeah. It's thanks to your book and your efforts to spread awareness of this that I was really clued into their potential value. I like to go antiquing in a a normal time. And a couple of years ago, I was at an antique store here in Ohio, and I found one of the Lincoln cents and one of the uh, Buffalo nickels, the 11 by 14 boards, and they really face up nice. And I thought, man, that would make a nice decoration for my office. And so it's really cool to think that something that had this tiny role in the development of the hobby is here it is 80 years later almost and uh, is still out there still to be found and certainly I know the values for them have risen thanks to your book and people knowing that they exist and knowing what to pursue and then deciding to pursue it yeah it really uh, it is a kind of a compelling product particularly the big 11 by 14 boards because there's no mistaking that for anything modern you know they have that antique quality Coin boards were produced only from 1935 to about 1948, and most of the publishers dropped out almost at the very beginning of World War II because of paper shortages. It just made it impractical. Whitman, with its greater connections and the fact that it was doing a certain amount of war production work also, was able to maintain their product line, but even it dropped out of the coin boards in 1942 to concentrate solely on the folders and use whatever limited resources they had to keep those in production. Is there any kind of a grading scale that exists for these kinds of products? And different rarity scales exist for different series of coins, and I assume that similar scales exist for boards and folders. How could someone familiar with coin grading and rarity concepts and terminology, are there any similar concepts and a grading scale that exist for boards and folders as well? Well, at this stage, coin board and folder grading is a very simplistic matter. It's kind of a throwback to the early days of coin grading. When I sat down to write my book uh, on boards, which was the first one I did back in 2007, I didn't really have any experience grading paper products prior to that time. So, uh, you know, as you know, I work for NGC. So I just went down the hall and talked to some CGC people, the ones who do the comics and magazines. And I asked them, you know, what sort of grades do you use? And I developed a grading range on that, but it was purely alpha. We have very good, fine, very fine, and near mint. I have not progressed to the point of using numbers because the hobby is not yet that sophisticated. Basically, until if and until they get to the point where they're being certified and encapsulated, I don't think numeric grading is really called for at this point. You know, sometimes I'll call a board VG-fine, meaning it's better than VG, but not quite fine. But we haven't really split it down to uh, numbers yet. I have a hard time envisioning slabs for coin folders. I, 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 want, I want to send it off to CAC. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a really big slab, I guess, is, is my Actually, point. you know, I mean, the, the, the coin boards are 11 by 14, which is a standard industry size, particularly in the early 20th century. 
all of the old magazines, like the old Life magazine, Saturday Evening Post, all of that, they were produced in 11 by 14, which is something that CGC has been certifying for some years. So I did approach the company about the prospect of certifying coin boards, you know, given the fact that the tooling already existed. But there is an interest at this point. I think uh, values have to rise to a greater point or there has to be a greater mass of collectors. And, you know, at, at that point, you'll start to interest major numismatic dealers and perhaps branching into this. Uh, that sort of pressure or that sort of support doesn't exist yet. So for now, it's a fun little hobby. Values have gone up tremendously since I published my book. I mean, that the price guide in there is just hopelessly obsolete. That's why I put out an annual update. Anybody who wants to email me can receive a PDF of all the current values and also updates to the book because obviously new varieties have come out over the years. So there's about a three-page list of errata and addenda for that book alone. And for the three books that have followed it on coin albums and folders, I do the same thing also. So every year I put out an annual update for each of these four publications. You almost perfectly preempted my next question, which was going to reference a piece you published in Coin Week, where you talked about how values for coin boards increased in the years since you published your book on them in 2007. What do you think drives collector interest in these boards? What quality do they have and what do they say about the era that they come from that resonates with collectors? And do you think that the availability of literature, what you're writing essentially, on the topic will spur interest? Well, it already has to a certain extent. I am not in the position of promoting as much as I can. I do have a full-time job, and so I do not want to compete with that. So I'm not out there uh, doing the uh, Dave Lang Roadshow, going from town to town hawking coin boards. But I do put out a quarterly newsletter to keep people apprised of that. it's uh, We're up to issue number 55 now, so it's been going on for some time. And of course, I keep the annual updates for the different values and whatever. But as to get back to your core question, the appeal of this, certainly it's the graphic quality of these items. A lot of the early coin boards are extremely colorful. They use multicolor printing. They have nice, rather primitive graphics of the coin design. Some of them are quite fanciful. The number of stars is wrong compared to the actual coin, things like that. You know, but they're very attractive. The fonts used are unmistakably 1930s. You know, they just have that instant nostalgia quality. You know, in fact, I even sent uh, a copy of my book to the Smithsonian's Museum of Design so that they would have that on file simply because it is such an archive of uh, 1930s graphics and font styles. Part of it is the rarity. There are so many rare coin boards. In my own collection, I have at least four boards that are absolutely unique. And, and I'm not even speaking by minor varieties. I'm see, saying that this publisher and this denomination, uh, this coin series, that board is only known by a single example. There are others of which we know maybe four or five examples that are known. I pretty much know who owns what because we all have a community and we kind of keep up with one another. But there are certainly enough common attractive boards out there that people can get into the hobby at any level. I could sell a nice VF coin board of a common type for about 15 to $20. So there is an entry level point for anybody who wants to pursue that hobby. You mentioned that coin boards are graphically appealing. As more and more people are trying to think about how to expand the hobby, broaden the audience for numismatics, do you think that there could be a renaissance of coin boards or coin folders in, in terms of really attractive presentations that might get 
a broader selection of folks engaged in the hobby? Well, there have been attempts to revive coin boards. Back in the 1990s, Professional Numismatist Guild put out a very widely distributed coin board for the Lincoln Memorial Series, covered 1959 up through the 1995 double diobverse cent, which was a big news story that year. And they must have produced, I don't know, 100,000 or more of those because they were at every coin show in piles for about a year or two uh, in the mid-90s. As far as a general revival of coin boards, uh, one of my customers actually produced coin boards for the series that didn't have them originally, such as Roosevelt Dimes, Franklin Halves, Washington Quarters. Most of these coin series either came after boards had been discontinued or they were so new that nobody at the time thought anybody would buy a coin board for them. And these attempts to reintroduce it have been somewhat unsuccessful. There's a certain novelty value. You know, a few people buy them all just to have an example for their own collections, but the general public didn't really take to them that well. And even uh, Whitman, about the time that my coin board book came out in 2007, produced a series of tribute boards. They brought the Lincoln Cent series all the way up to 1958 in a two-piece board and also did one for Buffalo Nichols. They were based on Whitman's third edition of coin boards that was produced from 1939 to 1941. And they just replaced the original matte printing with a nice metallic finish printing. And they were actually absolutely beautiful coin boards. But I don't think Whitman found it satisfying enough to pursue it any further. So it's probably not a concept for modern collecting of coins. But the original vintage pieces are very highly collectible for what they represent. It's amazing that you've been able to parlay this interest into, like I say, a a position as unofficial historian for Whitman. I mean, you've published, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, more about the company history of Whitman in recent times than Whitman itself. So I know Chris is fascinated by the evolution of the hobby, particularly And it's important that these are really artifacts that reflect the growth and expansion of the hobby. And yeah, I I just, I thank you for exploring that with us today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to do it. Obviously, Whitman is something that I wanted to treat in detail for some years, but I had to take a stab at the items that were already more permanently established as collectibles, such as Raymond's National Albums and Robert Friedberg's Library of Coins series. Those were the first two volumes in the coin album book. And finally, now I'm able to do one on Whitman, which is far and away not only the biggest product line, but the biggest of the three books. And it was certainly the most fun for me to do. I have something like 5,000 Whitman blue folders, probably about four to 500 of Whitman's bookshelf albums, plus all of the complete sets of almost all of the other product lines that have been forgotten over the years. Things like the current issues collections, deluxe coin collection. Uh, These are things that people reading the book will be amazed to see, as well as all of the accessories. How many people have ever seen the coin store game? That's a very rare item, which I've been shopping for for several years, and it's all documented in the new book. Yeah, I was going to say, I saw that in what you sent us. It's... um... Do you find that through eBay? I know because you've created this um, sort of carved out this niche area that people know that you're into this stuff and they bring it to you. But is eBay about the only place to find new things or or where does this stuff pop up? Well, eBay is probably the best place. You know, I've been collecting this stuff for almost 40 years. So in the old days, I just used to make the rounds of all the coin shops. Every month or so, I'd get around, circle around all the coin shops, first in California 
and then later when I joined NGC in New Jersey. But since the internet's come along, eBay's probably the best place to find these things. The only downside of eBay is even though it's given us greater opportunities to buy things, it's also exposed that a lot of things we used to think were rare are not rare. Because at any given time, you could find maybe a couple dozen of a particular coin folder, which if you tried to go store to store, you would almost never find. So it's it's brought buyers and sellers together. And it certainly made me aware of things that I didn't already know about. A few of the items that I've seen on eBay have eluded me. And uh, some of those are covered in the book too. Things that I don't have in my collection, which is a very, very short list indeed. Yeah, I like the Irish ones myself, which um, makes me think how many of those, if you have a trip to Ireland some point, <laughs> hit some shops up and, and bring some of those back. <laughs> oh, don't think I haven't done that. Anytime I hear that somebody's <laughs> going to Ireland, I give them a photo of Whitman's green Irish coin folders and say, you're probably not going to go to a coin shop, but if you do, keep an eye out for that. Is the, the Irish folders, there's only eight titles in the series to cover the modern coins of Ireland, 1928 to 1968, but they're exceedingly rare. They don't even turn up for sale much in the United Kingdom or the Republic. And over here, forget about it. I mean, I, I see one on eBay maybe once every four or five years, and I have to really go to limit and pay for something. Fortunately, now I finally have all of the titles in nice condition. But it was close there. The last one I needed didn't turn up until about a year ago when the book was already uh, quite well along. So I can confirm that they all exist, but trying to find another one is another matter. And the upside of things being more accessible because of eBay is all of a sudden anybody can compete against you to get it. So, <laughs> and, and Well, that too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in the olden days, coin dealers' eyes would light up when I said, I want to take this stack of 12 coin albums. What do you want for them? It's like, you know, they would almost pay me to take them out of the shop because these things are worthless once they strip the coins out of them. Or so people thought. Nowadays, there aren't as many coin shops. And when you go to a coin show, you remember coin shows. We used to have those until this year. But uh, when I'd go to a coin show in the last 20 years or so, dealers don't bring coin albums and folders anymore. Because if they have that, it goes onto eBay or some similar internet platform. Yeah. Well, very good. We do remember coin shows and we will be back to coin shows eventually. We know the Dalton just happened over the weekend and there's some... My hope is uh, early next year, maybe. In the meantime, we get to do these podcasts and, and write articles and, and think about our hobby in fun ways and share the hobby this way until we can meet again in person. So we do thank you again for taking this time to explore the wonderful, fascinating, fun, and I dare say important area of the hobby, these uh, boards and albums and folders. Well, certainly my pleasure. Thank you both, Chris and Jeff. And keep an eye out for those rare coin folders. Absolutely. Thanks so much. That was our interview with David W. Lang about the Whitman line of coin products, coin books, albums, folders, all that jazz. We hope you learned as much as we did, if not more, and enjoyed it. And certainly look forward to bringing more of these to you every week. And to help us keep doing that, the best thing you can do is to keep on listening every week and remember to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. We also love to hear from you. And, you know, and again, like I, I mentioned at the top, we are trying to put together a segment of listener questions. So please feel free to reach out to us with questions, concerns, comments, etc. And 
you know, hopefully we'll be able to put that segment together. But in the meantime, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the Coin World Podcast was brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. All the safety, trust, and convenience you'd expect from CoinWorld. With over 40,000 coins available, visit coinworld.market to explore our inventory today.